Good morning, y'all. All right. I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks. I'm excited. This is uh, a beautiful couple of psalms. I, I think they, they go together in all sorts of, of exciting ways. Uh, the situation today, right, we are concluding a series that we've been going through over the summer on the songs, or the psalms rather, the psalms of ascent. Uh, 15. So by the end of the day, we're going to cover Psalms 14 and 15 in that series. And what, what they were used for is Jewish pilgrims, uh, three times a year, give or take, would go from wherever they lived up to Jerusalem. And that trip would take days, it might take weeks, and so they had songs to sing on the way. Sort of like a playlist, right? Uh, or if, if you're closer to my age, maybe a mixtape, you remember the cassettes? Eight tracks, that's some of y'all, so. Um, right, but it's, it, it's singing, it's fun, it's community, and we're just gonna draw out all sorts of things. So the implication, right, these pilgrimages had a purpose. Uh, it was a lot of work to walk for days or weeks. Most folks didn't have deep pockets, limited means, right? These were humble people making these trips. And so our, our task today is to explore, well, why? Why would you do this? And why would you do it three times a year? The complication is that we struggle to put ourselves into that culture. Uh, the geography is important. We're going to talk a little bit about that. The sense of community that they had, just absolutely central. Absolutely central. Like the Israelites were first part of an immediate family, extended family, then a tribe, then a nation. All right, so community was very formative, right? It was everything. It was how their lives were ordered, and that's a little different than how we think independently today. And so my, my position, having studied, prayed, tried to pull together something encouraging out of God's Word, faithful to His truth, uh, is that if we're willing to adjust our weekly habits, right, to push into community, uh, we're going to soak up far deeper amounts, if I can say it that way, much more vitality in the Spirit, through community, through worship, and the blessings that those things create, right? We need deeper relationships with each other that are founded on the worship of Christ. So I'd ask you, think through these two psalms with me today. There are several images. They're very, very vivid, right? Try to picture these images. It helps, right, as we work from mind to heart, right, out into actions and words and speech, try and soak up the images. It, it will help, right, this week. And if you do, right, if you respond sincerely, right, sincerely respond to the scriptures, you'll benefit from the wisdom that God designed for his disciples, right? There is purpose in this. Right? Rather than cutting against the grain of life that God designed for us, a life submitted to Christ will sync up with its purpose, Right? And our purpose, ultimately, is to know and to enjoy God. If you quote Jesus a little bit more directly on this point, he talked about, uh, we'll learn how to drink more deeply from the river of life right, that wells up within us to eternal life. Are you guys hearing the echo? Is that just me? All right, they're working on it, so we'll get there. So, let's get started. Uh, the Psalms form a cycle with three parts. Three parts. Uh, the first is unity, the second is worship, and then the third is blessing, okay? And they form a cycle, 
There is a cycle to these things. Let's start with unity. Uh, Psalm 133, it starts there. It calls our attention to how good unity is in the first verse. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The goodness here, this is worth noting, the goodness here, it's the same goodness as in Psalm 23. And if you remember, the Lord is my shepherd, right? This is David talking about his relationship with the Lord. And in that psalm, he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. And their goodness and mercy, they're personified, right? They're following. So it, it, it's the personification of God's goodness in Psalm 23, saying goodness here, right? In the context of brotherhood, right? That's, it's, it's heart-rending sweetness and goodness, That same kind of goodness, right? It was in the context, certainly, of blood and family and relationships, I mentioned. Uh, but it also was in the context of faith because they were moving, right, towards Jerusalem to have this, uh, this experience of worship in the temple that they went to each year or three times a year. Uh, these, they're also in close proximity, right? So this goodness, this brotherhood, um, you have to be with someone. So again, on the road, probably annoying each other, right? If this, like, you, you guys have been on seven or ten day trips with people, some of these mission trips, you get to know each other, sometimes maybe more than you wanted to, right? Um, can I borrow your toothbrush? No, you should have brought your own, right? But it, this is real brotherhood. This is real proximity that creates this kind of blessing, that people are together. And the fact that Psalmist here in 133 draws attention to how good unity is implies he knows how nasty strife is. Right? Strife is anything but, and most of us are pretty familiar with angry disagreements with people that sort of cut or freeze or chill a relationship. That stuff is just poison. Right? It's nasty. It's unsettling. Right? And it just it deteriorates the unity that we otherwise have as brothers and sisters in Christ. So rather than stewing in that kind of mess, right, in the strife that can so often come together, right, or emerge when we get together, the psalmist wants us to picture people that are bound together, right, in common cause. They want to be together. They agreed to take a Jerusalem together because they agreed that worshiping the Lord was worth it. That's the point. And here, here's part of the unity. They know that they agree that it's worth worshiping the Lord, so, for instance, you and I are here today because we've made that same decision. It is worth worshiping the Lord. That's why I'm going to go. And the fact that you and I have made that decision together, I, I get some strength from that. Right? And hopefully you do too. There is commonality in knowing that we are like-minded in our worship of God. Right? That gives some sense of protection, of belonging, of purpose, right? of brotherhood, and it's life-giving. Part of the reason I was so excited, right? I've been looking forward to this. And so he builds this out, right? Two images to try and press in on the concept of unity in this passage. Uh, the first one, the first image he gives us is oil or olive oil. Now, a little bit of context is helpful here on olive oil. You have to go back to Exodus. This is in chapter 30 for some of the context. Uh, the Lord gave instructions on how to consecrate Aaron and his sons. They were priests. Hopefully we're going to work on that. 
Um, but there were a very specific set of instructions on how do we go about the ceremony. There's something important here to set apart, to consecrate Aaron and his sons to be the priest between God and men. And that, that's the core of what the priestly role is, right? You have God on the one hand, people on the other. You need somebody in the middle to stand in the gap. So part of the, the, um, the instructions that God gave included a recipe to put together oil, right? And these things came together in olive oil, and it was about a gallon, right? If you do the measurements and you do the translations, this is a gallon worth of olive oil. Now, think about that for a little bit. How long does it take for a tree to grow? A while, right? An olive tree. It takes a season, at least, to produce olives. If you grab one and you squish it into your milk jug, you get a drop, maybe two, if it's a big one, right? Big olive. It takes a while, right, to put together a gallon of olive oil, right, to do this. And so the, the time and the effort and the intentionality that it takes to create this big jug of oil, it was expensive. It was time-consuming, and that's, it was precious, right? And if you'll notice, that's the way that the psalmist describes the oil here. Unity is like precious oil. Right? Precious has always, the oil has always been associated with wealth and effort and sacrifice because it took a long time right, to create it, right, to pull it together. So now I've got my mix, right? I've got all of this precious oil, and I'm in this ceremony to consecrate the priest. So on the one hand, I would do it, and this is the reference to the oil falling down the head and the collars and the beard of Aaron because they were being set apart, right? He and his sons for the priestly role. And you go through the rest of that ceremony, same thing. We consecrate the, uh, the ark and the tent of meeting, which represent God. Right, the physical presence of God, or the, the literal presence of God represented by those symbols. And so the oil is what links the priest and God. Right? It's what symbolizes and preserves the relationship between the priest and God, and the priest representing the people. Right? It's precious. It has a purpose. And that purpose is the vitality right, that flows from people being rightly related to God. That's the point of the oil. Second image is dew. And I have to admit, the first time I read this passage, I had no idea what would precipitation and unity have to do with each other. Right? No idea at all. Uh, but the good news is research helps. It pays off a bit. Uh, dew collects on Mount Hermon. That's the, the statement here that unity is like the dew of Mount Hermon. Right? Uh, particularly in the summer, dew will collect Mount Hermon is on the coast, right near the Mediterranean Sea, so you get moisture coming off of the sea, and it's much heavier than anything that we would experience here and anywhere else in North, North America. It's uh, sticky, it's heavy, I mean, it's, it's close to rain, right? It's very heavy. Uh, the dew nourishes snow at the top of the mountains year-round, right? It doesn't ever completely dry up on the top of Mount Hermon. And then it melts, right, as the temperatures warm descends the mountainside, that waters all the vegetation and the streams and the pools and the, the little ponds on the lake, comes all the way down the mountain, right, into the valley, they would use it for irrigation, and, right, and so you have these just awesome, lush, green valleys, we've actually seen it driving by on a trip a few years ago, um, and so things start to blossom and bloom. Vines, grapes, olives, lilies, 
right? Because of this dew that starts at the top, descends, preserves, gives life. All right, let me show you. I think we've got a graphic if we can put it up. I'll let you look at that for a second. All right, so the, the cluster of mountains is collectively Mount Hermon. It's not one, any individual peak. So you can see what look like clouds. Most of that is dew, right? This is the heavy stuff coming off of the Mediterranean Sea, right? You can kind of envision, we're too far out, but you can kind of envision the little pools and rivulets and the things coming out, right? Or just tracing down through the mountain. And you see the greenness at the bottom? Unity gives life, right? The way that dew gives life to everything around Mount Hermon, Right? It's cyclical, it's predictable, it's nourishing, and it's life-giving. Unity is the same thing. That's his point. Right? That when we worship together, when we are unified on that point that the Lord is worth it, that's why we're here, that's what we're about, that's what we want to grow in, it's like this. Right? It gives life. And there's a lot of snow. Uh, it doesn't look like much in this picture. There's actually a ski resort at the top of Mount Hermon. If you've Googled that, that's kind of wild. Right? I, I can sort of envision... Jewish folks with like curly cues and skiing, and, right? But anyway, that's not part of the image, right? It's just the dew. But put those two images together, right? Oil that preserves a priest and links God and man on the one hand, life-giving dew that comes down the mountains to sustain life in the valley, right? It's powerful. It's pretty. Right? It's beautiful. That's what biblical unity does. It gives and it preserves life, right? Spirit-imbued, spirit-filled life. As those here, hopefully most of us, have placed our faith in Christ, it's why we can worship together. Imagine if we had to persuade each other as we came here every weekend who God is, what he's done for us, does he really exist? I don't think he does. Right? Can you worship in that environment? Right? And New Testament is filled with Paul's appeals to unity within the church. Right? It's important. Right? And there's a self-interest that we have in preserving and protecting and investing and giving ourselves into unity. It's like drinking water, right? It's the river of life welling up within us. When we agree on the Lord's great worth and primacy, right, above everything else, well, then we're, we're on pretty firm footing with each other, right? If that is my bedrock value, right, if I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, as he moves me closer, more effectively, doing that over time, and he does the same in you, there is a foundation there that gives us joy together in worship, for sure. It's also something that will sustain differences, disagreements, hurt feelings, right? fights, because this is more fundamental. Right? We need the unity to preserve who we are in Christ together. Right? It's one thing to pull up a worship song on Spotify or my playlist or whatever it is in the car in rush hour traffic by myself. It's another thing to do it here. Right? When Moy and the worship team lead us, it's it's better than Pandora. It's better than Spotify. Right? God moves when two or three are gathered together in his name. 
It is something worth protecting and investing in. And if you've been here with us for a while, any time at all, um, hopefully you've experienced some of that here. Not because we're a perfect church. We are all redeemed sinners, right? No one has a claim on perfection. But hopefully we've spurred one another on towards love and good deeds and enjoyed the presence of God moving, right, in our hearts and in our minds. It's why we sing, some better than others. It's why we study together. It's why we even weep together. Right? Over the goodness of God. Right? I, uh, I think often of the, um, the disciples. They were on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion and the resurrection, but they hadn't sort of heard the update. They didn't know a whole lot of what was going on. And they, they have this hitchhiker. They don't know who he is. Anyway, later, they come to find out they were walking with Jesus. They say, weren't our hearts just burning within us? <clears throat> Excuse me, burning within us. Right? That's a gift. Right? It is external. It's the Spirit coming to us. Right? But it's precious. It is worthwhile. It's encouraging, and it's life-giving. And that kind of unity only deepens as we draw nearer to the Lord. Two examples in the New Testament where we see this. Uh, the first is Pentecost. You remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter's just given a sermon. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. And the reason the whole thing works is because the Spirit came in power. And there were people from all over the place. The fact that they all had different languages indicates they all have very different cultures and backgrounds. God enabled people from all over the place through his miraculous power in the spirit to hear the gospel, to respond in faith, right, to be unified in Christ. And at the end of chapter two, we get this snapshot, right, of what life was like for this group of people who have just been melded together through the spirit. That passage states that all who believed, not, not just everybody, right, it's not unity for the sake of unity, it's all who believed were together, Right? Belief is what sustains the unity. All of those who believed were together, and they were in each other's homes. Right? Like they invited folks over. They were eating each other's food. If you're a teenage boy, that's a good thing. <laughs> right? Uh, they were sharing each other's resources. Nobody was under compulsion. Right? They moved in these ways because the Spirit enabled unity. By myself, I am not giving my food, sharing my time, inviting people over. I am a selfish man by myself. Right? But these marks, they, they make our Savior look good. Right? And they are fun to participate in. Right? It is a blessing. It's the foundation for everything else. The other thing that's interesting to me, just as a sidebar, right? you have this picture of unity and worship and praise and brotherhood and everything because, the God, because God enabled understanding with language. You say, well, why didn't they all have the same language to start? Why did we have to have the Spirit giving the gift of tongues? Well, remember, where did language get scattered? Babel, right? And what was going on there? All sorts of pride, right? Human pride, I'm going to build a big tower, I'm going to build, you know, 
ascend to heaven, God confused language and dispersed. Right? There is no unity around human pride and ambition. Right? God says, here's my son, here's my spirit. I'm going to let you understand. That's cool. All right. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Paul is writing to a church that's got a lot of uh, a lot of mix of different folks, different backgrounds again. And so it says in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that he was addressing Greeks and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slave and free, right? It's a very cosmopolitan group that have come together in this church because of belief in Christ, because of the Spirit. And his instruction to them is to put off the old self with its practices. So my putting off of my old self is going to be different than somebody else's old self. Right? We're all putting off our old selves. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. So we come from all sorts of different places. And I'm not moving over here because this group's got the corner on the gospel message, nor are they coming to my corner. It says all of us are putting off the old self with our sinful habits, the things we repent of, our preferences. But we put on the new self. We are clothed with Christ. Right? And it, it starts in our mind, in our spirits, right? being renewed in the image and in the knowledge of our creator. And again, go back to the very beginning. God made man, right? and woman in his image. That's what's central, right? As we have the faculties and the spirit and the image-bearing characteristic of God. And God says, I'm going to renew that through Christ. So everything else is sort of peripheral and secondary, and we glory in unifying around Christ. It doesn't seem very complicated when you just stop to think about it, right? But it does take time. It does take effort. It does take leaning into one another with the Spirit's grace to get us there. That's the sort of kinship now, right? Come back to Psalm 133, verse 3, when he says this unity is like the dew of Hermon, and then he parallels, right, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Well, the dew of Hermon is very far away. It is not falling literally on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is where God dwelled, if you'll recall. Zion was the dwelling place of God. And so in lieu of life-giving dew on Hermon, you have the life-giving Spirit of God moving into Mount Zion where people dwell and are nourished and are sustained, right? So dew sustains the vegetation. The descending Spirit of God sustains his people in Zion. That's the parallel. So hold on to those images, right? Oil and dew describe implicitly in the first two verses What's explicit here in verse 3? For there, Mount Zion, there the Lord has commanded the blessing of life evermore. So, eternal life arising because God gives his presence. God's spirit descending to meet with man. All right, that's unity. I've mentioned worship several times. Let's, let's go there. Let's talk about worship now. Now, worship is, I think certainly implicit, if not explicit, in 133, because we talk about the Aaronic priesthood, right? The priest would get the people together, they would worship. So it's in that 
uh, illusion, and certainly in Zion, people got together in Zion to worship, but boy, it is crystal clear here in 134. First verse, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Come worship. Come worship. Uh, the leader, just again, a little bit of context, the leader who's calling the people to worship is likely to have been a Levite. Right? That was their role, was to work and keep and tend the temple. So I've got a quote here from First Chronicles. Uh, Those who were musicians, heads of Levite families, stayed in the rooms of the temple. They were exempt from other duties because they were responsible for the work day and night. And so these folks lived in the temple to keep the temple to lead worship. There was probably a rotation or a schedule of some sort. Uh, that was their job. That's what they did. And you see a little bit of a reference there in verse 1 because the call is to come and worship at night, which is just interesting to me. Right. Knowing what we do, again, about the folks on this pilgrimage to come up to Jerusalem, it wasn't easy. It took time. It took effort. And knowing that these priests lived and worked there 24-7, you know, I, I don't... Maybe you're the new guy and you get the night shift. I don't know, right? But, but they kept it going, right? They kept it going. The, the, it was all the time. Um, it, it's easy for me to envision a really intense moment of worship when everybody comes in. Right? If I'm one of the, the Levite priests, it's kind of you know, time to shine, so to speak. It's exciting that folks are coming to worship. That's my job. That's what I'm about. And all the people who made this effort and this investment to get there, that, that's why we're there. And they're doing it at night. I don't know how late it is, right? We don't have that detail. But, you know, it's, it's not, I think, unfair to the text to envision people worshiping all night long. These were not like hour, hour and a half services from 1030 to noon, right? This was much more pervasive to the culture and the lifestyle and therefore the time, right, that you would spend in worship When we look at the language here, the psalmist says, bless the Lord. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on that word. Uh, it's easier, maybe more natural for me to think of the Lord blessing people. But he calls the people to bless the Lord. Right? So what's going on with that term? Uh, the, when you do the word study on the word for blessing, uh, at its root... It has the idea of breaking down or kneeling. So in the context of worship of the leader's call, he's telling the people, come and worship the Lord. Makes perfect sense, right? If we, we have this history of God, right, as Jewish folks, we put them in, their, in ourselves in their history. Creation, flood, sort of the renewal that came after the flood. Uh, you have everything in Egypt that started good and went bad. There's slavery, there's deliverance, there's the Red Sea, there's Exodus, there's Sinai. These people know who God is. And this is the place where God descends to dwell and interact with them specifically. And so when he says, bless the Lord, break down, kneel, right? it makes sense. Because I know who God is. Right? It's not... Um, it's not coerced, but it comes out of recognition. Right? A right response to who he is, what he's done. 
Verse 2 says, lift up your hands. It's like instructions, right? Kneel, lift up your hands, but these things come very naturally. What's with the lifting of the hands? These people smell. They've been on the road. Keep your hands down. Right? Lift your hands. It's an act of surrender. When someone with more authority... When I'm subject to that authority, I recognize my captor. I recognize my better. I'm happy to raise my hands. Right? It's also um, a sign of, of proclamation where we're drawing attention to who God is. You see this with little kids, right? Running up to mom and dad. They're not worried about looking weird. Right? When have you seen a three-year-old or four-year-old be self-conscious? That comes at about 12. But in the moment, right, it's blissful. And they are content and happy and free in the fact that someone who loves them, who is far stronger, right, who is kind, right, who condescends, Right? It's easy and it's right and it's good to bless the Lord, right? To break down and to do it together. Right? To not be the only one doing this. You know, like to be like minded in that. Right? So when we're singing, when we're worshiping, when we're studying, take a peek around, right? There is something encouraging in seeing brothers and sisters confessing, blessing the Lord. So, we've got unity. Uh, We've got worship. And now we've got blessing in this cycle. So in verse 3, the psalmist calls for the Lord to bless us. Like, okay. So is the Lord kneeling? Is he breaking down? In a sense, he's condescending. He's the parent kneeling to pick up the child. Right? So the word works. We can bless him. He can bless us. There are certainly distinct roles in that blessing. It fits perfectly, right? It's not hard to see how blessing can go both directions at the same time. Ultimately, because of who God is, right? who his character is, and all of his wondrous works. You see that refrain in a lot of the Psalms. Right? I know your character, you're gracious, you're abounding in steadfast love. And I know all your mighty works, creation, fall, Sinai, Exodus, right? We know God's heart and we know what he does. You see it in the cross for sure, right? His heart with love moves him to give his son, right? What motive would do that outside of goodness and graciousness and steadfast love? It's also a work. He was doing work that no one else could. So worship responds to the character and the work of God, right? That's why they came together for this blessing, right? To come to Zion, to enjoy their presence together, to enjoy the blessing of God. Now, there's a really cool third New Testament parallel that we need to spend some time on. Do you remember when Jesus met the woman at the well? 
have any of you watched The Chosen? Right? This, there's a really beautiful scene where this is reenacted, uh, I think faithfully, to, to the text. Um, Jesus chose a Samaritan woman purposefully. Um, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along, and we don't have time to go through why, uh, but they shunned each other. They hated each other. They, they would go around each other's, you know, the Jews would travel around Samaria and take the long way rather than having to actually talk or interact with a Samaritan when they were traveling. Jesus chose a Samaritan woman for this occasion, which was breaking taboo. It wasn't just, well, that's weird. I mean, this was, this was taboo. He was breaking taboo to do this. And so he has this dialogue with her, and, and you've got to love his patience and his wisdom interacting with her. And who's the first one that mentions the word Messiah? She does, right? He draws it out of her, which is just cool, right? That he picks this lady and helps her realize and come to terms with who the Messiah is. And he does it in the context of one of the disagreements that the Jews have with the Samaritans. Uh, She says, well, you know, you guys say we need to worship in Jerusalem. We have our other mountain, you know, and the, so there's this difference. There's this debate on where do you go to worship God. And Jesus, having all sorts of commitment and resolve and perspective on the kingdom of God, right? That is his work. That's what he's come for. He says the time is coming, and it has now come, right? Where God's worshipers are worshiping in spirit and in truth. You don't have to go to the mountain anymore. He says, salvation was from the Jews, but things are shifting. Right? The nation, the kingdom of God is now not restricted geographically anymore. It's one thing to tell another Jewish person that. It's another to hold out hope and redemption to a Samaritan. He says, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth wherever they are, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, and then the backwoods where you and I are, right? right? God's kingdom expanding, drawing people in to unity, drawing people in to worship out of sheer grace. That's the cycle of blessing, right? He gives us his presence through the Spirit. That's where salvation comes. That's the foundation of our unity. We enter into corporate worship. We enter into fellowship and friendship with one another. We do that to bless the Lord. Happy surrender. He condescends to receive the worship and to bless us with his presence. Do you see that cycle? It doesn't end. It just gets deeper. It just gets better. So it it may be obvious by now, right? But this kind of unity, right, with the springboard for unity in Christ, worship, blessing, giving, receiving, it calls for deference to one another in reverence for Christ. That's why the foundation is so important. Just like oil running from head to toe, or dew going from mountain peak down to the valley. Blessing works best when unity is complete. Does that make sense? 
That's why one of Scripture's themes for the believers, right, for those of us in the church, is protecting our unity with one another. Jesus said, if, you know, if you're going to leave your offering at the altar, but you remember that your brother's got something against you, stop, don't worship yet. Go make it right. Right, it matters. Another place he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Spouses, families, friends, how many of us have gone to bed stewing over something before rather than going to work it out? And then you don't sleep well, right? I mean, there is real physiological damage when these things get bad enough. So the blessing here is not, or I'm sorry, the, the call for unity here is not just sort of the superficial, hey, you know, we're all cheerleaders on the same team. This is our livelihood, right? You can stew in bitterness and you can hang out in isolation and miss everything that God has for us in the vitality of unity in his church. And not only that, you're really holding a fist up to God saying, no, no, no. I'm going to do it my way. Right? There is defiance in unrepentant brokenness and in unrepentant isolation. That is not how we are designed. Right? So there is a command and a benefit to giving ourselves to biblical blessing and worship and unity. If you have healthy, well, before I go to that, so application, go, go fix the broken relationships. Okay, right, that's clear. Go, just go do it. Don't need a whole lot more than that. Now, if you have good relationships with people, that's fantastic, right? Strong, growing relationships with friends and neighbors, family in the church. When I say church, not necessarily Grace Church, church writ large. Go deeper. I enjoyed Moy the first time I met him. I like him more now. Right? <laughs> I know him more. I'm not going to ask him if he feels the same way, but I, I like him more, right, because we've gone deeper. Right? I haven't known Tony for very long, but I like him more now than I did when we first met him because we have life group together, right? We can talk. And then when I come in and I worship together and I see Moy on the stage and Tony's family takes up the entire back two rows, I smile, right? So I, we're kind of laughing, right? But that sort of unity makes this better. Right? So, spend time together. Eat food together. If you sit down at a table, put coffee in the middle, it will get better. Right? You just have a meeting if you sit down at the table together, right? But then it's fellowship when coffee hits the table. It just changes. Um, work together, right? Do odd jobs. Go with Mike to Malawi or Tanzania. You'll spend a lot of time with people. Um, Shannon's told, I, I think I can tell this story. It's a good story. Uh, Shannon said, you know, I like Teresa. Um, we don't get to hang out a whole lot, but I like Teresa. But then they spent a lot of time together when they went to Memphis. And it's like, you know, seven years and seven days. I'm like, I, I bonded with Teresa. There's a reason I sort of liked her, right? So, the food, the time, the fellowship, 
It's the exact same thing that these people were doing as they walked for days and weeks to get to the place of worship. So it's not sort of conceptual and academic. And I mean, it's like time. Spend time together. Work together. Worship together. Cry together. Laugh together. Pray together. You need this. I do too. That's ultimately why we gather each weekend to worship, because we need his presence, and we need it in each other. We gather on Sundays, we scatter during the week to share this life with others. If you want to sum it up in even fewer words, love God, and then love your neighbor. Blessings upon you.